Father, we are here this morning because we love you because you first loved us. We want to pray over our nation, Lord, over the coming election, um, over all that is happening in our world, Lord. It's not just about this country, but here's where we live. We're going to celebrate an Independence Day tomorrow. Um, We're going to celebrate freedom, but Lord, freedom is not free. It did cost. Men and women spilled their blood that we could stand here and be free today. And I pray, Lord, that we would not take those freedoms for granted. You know, I think of future generations when I think of this country. I think of my own sons and their future children. And Lord, we just want to say to you this morning that we're sorry for the times that we've gotten away from you or maybe been just weak in even who we are in Christ. We want to repent of that. We pray that pulpits will ring forth the truth in America, that those who are ambassadors of the gospel will not be ashamed, that we will hold forth the word of truth, that we will shine as lights in this generation, Lord. And Father, we pray that as we get into your word, that your word would get deep into our hearts so that we might be pleasing to the one who made us, saved us, called us, and adopted us into his family. We love you, Lord, and we pray that you'll just lead this time now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. From the inside out is the text. Let's go to Matthew 23. We're going to watch that Jesus was healing scores and scores of people once again. And he had many confrontations with the religious elite of the day, the scribes and the Pharisees is what you see often in your Bible. These were the separated ones, literally. The Pharisees separated themselves from normal societal life to be the religious elite of the day. Some of them served on the ruling council in Jerusalem. They were the religious experts of the day. And they were very concerned about doctrinal purity and personal purity. But along the way, something had happened to these men. Not every one of them, but most of them. It became more about the outside than it it was about the inside. It became more about the show than it was about the heart. And there's always a dangerous thing for us as human beings that we begin to mail in our Christianity. We begin to do things more for the outside than we really concern ourselves with the inside. It's very easy to play a role. It's very easy to be an actor, to turn on the charm and then turn it off. It's really been said that character is really determined by what you do when no one else is watching. Those are some of our biggest struggles, I would say. Who do you truly want to be in your life? Who do you want to serve? Who is your true Lord when no one is watching? That's the real acid test. The acid test is not if you can fool the people some of the time. The question is, who do you love and who do you serve? Every one of us has to wrestle with that. We don't do it perfectly. None of us do, but it is about the heart. And when Jesus was confronting the religious leaders, this is um, Matthew 23. Look at verse 25 with me. He said, he pronounces a woe. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, Matthew 23, 25. But inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish 
so that the outside of it may become clean also. Would you all mark that verse? There's an order there that Jesus reveals to the religious elite of his day. He says, look, you guys worry about polishing the outside. I'm telling you, you better take a look at the inside. You better look at your heart first because what comes out of the heart is what really matters and that flows out of the life. What we tend to do as people is we want to clean the outside instead of paying attention more to the inside. I heard Alistair Begg say recently that we spend a lot of time on our appearance. We do our hair. We want to look good. I'm right with you. However, he said we should pay more attention to the things on the inside because the things on the inside are the things that can kill you. If those parts aren't working right, you're in trouble. We tend to focus on the outside. We want to look good to people. We want to impress people. But Jesus looked into people's hearts. In fact, he could see right through people. He was one of those people, if you've ever known somebody like this, who could look into your soul. He knew what was going on. And he said, look, here's the order. First, take care of the inside. Then the outside will follow. Let me ask you, how are you doing in that particular area? Now, back to Mark chapter 6, if you turn with me, Mark 6, we'll pick up the account where we've left off as we continue to go through the book of Mark. And I want to just mention to you as we focus on the heart, the Bible has a lot of interesting things to say about the human heart. It says that God has put eternity into man's heart, Ecclesiastes 3.11. Romans 2.15 says the work of the law is written on their hearts. Joshua 2.11, people describe their hearts as melting, Luke 24, 32, the men on the road to Emmaus said, our hearts were burning within us as Jesus spoke to them. Romans 5, 5 says, God's love is poured out within our hearts, believers' hearts, through the Holy Spirit. And 1 Thessalonians 2, 4 says, God examines our hearts. In the last 24 hours, when Jesus was getting ready to go to the cross, John 14, 1, he said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, Believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you. It's possible that our hearts can be heavy. Our hearts can be troubled. And Jesus gives us the cure for heart trouble. But there's an intriguing verse here in Mark 6, 52. This is where we left off last time. And it, it's regarding the apostles. Mark 6, 52, it says that they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, the feeding of the 5,000 plus women and children, but their heart was hardened. The men that had spent time with Jesus, the men that had watched miracle after miracle, the men that had now become vessels to be used by God to cast out demons and heal the sick and preach the gospel, Jesus identified something in them. Their hearts were hardened. The, the Greek word here is calloused. Is that you? Is that me? Life can sometimes do that to us. But how could it be said of these 12 men who had this life-changing experience of, a, of seeing God in action? What had happened to them along the way? You know, people often say, well, the heart will change if you can simply just see a miracle. Then I'll believe. Oh, yeah? These guys saw thousands of miracles. And yet the Bible describes their hearts as being hard. And Jesus sent them into a storm. Why? I believe the storm was for softening purposes. 
And they rode against the the waves that were contrary eight to ten hours in all likelihood. And then Jesus came to them walking on the sea. They were exhausted, poured out, done, finished. That may describe some of you. And then he came. And the Bible says he intended to pass them by. An interesting verse, but the verse can mean that he was coming near. And maybe the essence of it is he wanted them to call upon him. And he began as they were troubled and they thought they had seen a ghost. He said, I am. Don't be afraid. It is I. Ego in me. Some scholars believe he was proclaiming the name of the Lord, much like God did uh, up on Sinai for Moses. You'll see the back parts of my glory. Don't be afraid. It's me. It is I. And then Peter stepped out in faith, sunk. They got back into the boat. Jesus calmed the storm. Immediately, John 6 says they were at their destination. Now it's time for more ministry. But what do you do with an experience like that? Do you think your heart would have softened a little bit? Do you think you would have said, you know what? Here we were rowing, rowing, rowing against the, the waves, and here he is. He calms the storm once again. Matthew 14 tells us that when that was all done, they worshiped him in the boat, and they said, surely you are the son of God. Sometimes storms are intended to reshape our hearts Sometimes they're intended to soften our hardened hearts. It's not like we all invite storms into our lives or enjoy storms. I hear Stephanie up here talking, and I'm like, wow, <laughs> that's pretty cool. She wants to be stretched. She wants to be challenged. And that's what God wants to do in your life and mine. He doesn't want you just to be sitting in the bleachers or on the bench. He wants you to get into the game. And there's going to be some stretching time when that happens, but that stretching is good. And so here we go. This is uh, just a few other verses on the heart. Son of man, take all my words into your heart, Ezekiel 3.10. Jeremiah 4.14 says, wash your heart from evil, O Jerusalem, that you may be saved, Jeremiah 4.14. Washing is going to be a big part of this ceremonial cleanness. And Jeremiah 4.14 says, wash your heart. Remember, when we're talking about the heart, we're not talking about your physical organ, as miraculous as that is. In Jewish thought, the heart, the Hebrew word is lev. If you're interested, just write down L-E-V, lev, transliterated into English. The word in the Hebrew picture language means that which controls the inside or the house. One writer says the heart is the center of human personality, which determines a man's entire action and inaction. The Bible says, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the issues or the springs of life, Proverbs 4.23. The heart is the source of all spiritual and moral conduct. It's the place from which you make decisions. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. This is where God wants to work, in the core of who you are. That's what your heart is. And the Bible says, wash your heart. David prayed in Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. In Psalm 139, verse 23, he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Psalm 139, 23, and 24. In Philemon 20, Paul writes, Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Philemon, verse 20. 
Your heart can be refreshed. Your heart, you can say to God, create in me a clean heart, reshape my heart. But these are dangerous prayers. Because when you ask God to have a searchlight go into your heart, you're asking a major thing. You're saying, Lord, I don't want to just look good on the outside. I want you to search the inside. And when you start praying like that, you're going to start discovering that your heart's going to change. Because God's going to start to do some surgery on the inside. This is what was happening to the apostles as they went along with Jesus. He was working on their hearts. Now, they had crossed over Mark 6, 53, and they came to the land at Gennesaret. They moored to the shore, Mark 6, 54. And when they had come out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him, that's Jesus, and ran about that, that whole country and began to carry about on their pallets those who were sick to the place that they heard he was. And here's a sweeping statement in Mark's gospel. And wherever he entered villages or cities or countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces and entreating him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak. And as many as touched it were being cured. Left and right, he would go into villages and different places and people saw him and heard him and they were laying the sick one after the other. And I don't know how many people Jesus healed in his earthly ministry, but by this point, just in Mark's gospel, it's got to be thousands upon thousands of people. But physical healing is one thing. Spiritual healing is quite another. And I think that everybody who Jesus touched, that was his intention. His intention was to get to the soul. But people were desperate for healing, and one after the other, came, they came, and he would preach the message, and he would touch people, and he had compassion on the multitudes. Some years ago, I heard a program on Focus on the Family when James Dobson was still the president. And they interviewed a pastor who was a, a preacher. I think he was a preacher in the South. And he got this weird infection, and it went into his vocal cords, and he lost his voice. And as a pastor, that's a terrible thing to have happen to you. And he had this condition for three years, and he, he described the condition in this way. He said it felt like someone was squeezing his windpipe when he tried to talk. So he went to doctor after doctor after doctor, and they were trying to figure out what was going on with his vocal cords. And all they could say was they, they believed that somehow this infection got into his vocal cords and damaged them or did something to his voice. And so he had to resign as a pastor. He didn't believe the congregation, you know, even though they were trying to tell him to stay, he didn't believe it was fair to them. And he wrestled with these big questions. Oh God, why? I'm a pastor. My voice is absolutely essential to what I do. And you've allowed my voice to be taken from me. What are you doing? And he had all these terrible, you know, uh, struggles and deep questions. His name is Pastor Dwayne Miller. He was asked to speak at a Sunday school uh, about three years later. This was about 1993. The problem with his voice happened in 1990. And the Sunday school class wanted him to teach. He was a very good Bible teacher. He said, you guys don't want me to come. All I can do is croak out the message, right? So this was the only Sunday school in this church where they actually recorded it uh, on audio cassette. And when he spoke, if you squeeze your windpipe, he, he spoke like this. Okay, turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 53. That's how he spoke. 
So he got as close to the microphone as he could, and he was speaking from Isaiah 53, and in this, it was a Baptist congregation. They had an annual teaching calendar. So whatever was on the calendar, that's what the pastor would teach in this adult Sunday school. So it happened to be that when he came, he was teaching from Isaiah 53. And he was trying to make the case that even though in Isaiah 53, it's speaking of the atonement and God can heal, he was arguing that God is sovereign in healing. The atonement does not guarantee physical healing. Some of our friends in the word faith movement want to say that whenever you pray, healing is guaranteed in the atonement. No, it's not. Ultimate healing is guaranteed in the atonement. If you know Jesus, your soul is saved. That's the ultimate healing. But physical healing is not guaranteed in the atonement. And he's squeaking this out. Okay, guys, this is what the Bible teaches. It's not guaranteed that you're going to be healed. So he turns to Psalm 103 and he begins to read just as a parallel passage about that God heals all our diseases. He's reading through this psalm and as he's reading through this psalm, something miraculous happens. His voice, after three years of croaking out words, begins to be restored in the middle of reading Psalm 103. It's captured on an audio and you can Google this guy's name. If you want, write it down and go and look it up. Just look up family life, fam, uh, family talk, and look up Pastor Dwayne Miller. You can hear the seven-minute audio tape where God heals him in the middle of him saying that God is sovereign and he decides who gets healed. And his voice is fully restored, and his voice is still fully restored to this day. Wow. 13 years later. I mean... I, I was listening in my car a couple of days ago to the pastor talk, and this hits home for me. I've had some struggles with my voice from time to time, and I know what it means to want to have a strong, booming voice for the Lord. And as this pastor told this story, I began to cry in my car. Can you imagine being a person who saw things like that happen day in and day out? Would it become routine? That's what the apostles saw. They saw him do stuff like that, it seems like multiple times a day, and yet the Bible describes their hearts as what? Still hard? Doesn't that tell you something about our humanness? Doesn't that tell you something about we could have all these incredible things happen and yet somehow still be stubborn, impenetrable? You need to show me something else, God. Why are we so lacking in faith? Jesus said that many times to the apostles. Where is your faith? Well, with all that was going on, we uh, move into Matthew, excuse me, Mark 7, verse 1. It says, And the Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered together around him when they had come from Jerusalem. So now here's a, uh, an official delegation from the holy city where all the big schools and eminent scholars were. And while all the people gathered around Jesus to hear him and be healed, this group, this official party, probably sent by the Sanhedrin, the ruling council, they came and they circled Jesus almost like a, a pack of angry wolves on a victim. And they encircled him and they're going to begin to press him on some questions. We're about to have what we would call a theological debate. They carried all the ecclesiastical weight of the big wigs, the big guns from Jerusalem, and they had come to question Jesus and, in their minds, put him in his place. And 
Uh, They had seen, verse 2, Mark 7, some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees, verse 3, and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing, note this in your Bible, the traditions, plural, of the elders. The idea of washing here is a form of the word baptizo, where we get the idea of baptism. And the tradition of the elders moved through time and Originally, in the books of Exodus, and I believe it's somewhere else in the Old Testament, they, the priests were involved in ceremonial washing, and that, that was to prepare them to go into the presence of God and that kind of thing. Well, they took this idea of priestly washing, and it spilled over to the people. And the tradition of the elders became rabbinic tradition. When I say that, I mean rabbis. Different rabbis would say this about this subject, and it filled a book ultimately called the Mishnah. And they devoted some 186 pages to ceremonial washing. <laughs> Get that? Can you imagine that? And they had a certain way that they would wash their hands, and they, they had to use a certain amount of water. It had to be one and a half eggshells worth. And they would wash their hands, and they let the water run down and kind of run down their wrists. And they had to be careful to make fists and let it fall off, because if it ran back down their fingers, then they were defiled again. Some of the rabbis taught that when you went to sleep at night, a demon with a weird-sounding name got onto your hands at night. And so if you woke up in the morning and you had your breakfast and you didn't ceremonially... Now, I'm not talking... I know some of you guys are germaphobes. How many of you are germaphobes? Raise your hand. How many of you don't want to admit it? All right? So you go, you know... My mother's like this. My mother has impressed this upon me. It's dirty. She wipes things down, phones and everything, door handles. So I've picked up some of this now. You know, how many of you, you leave the restroom and you take the little thing, you know, the little towel, use that on the door, look around, (laughs) make sure nobody thinks you're a total freak. But that's not what we're talking about here. You should wash your hands. Cleanliness is next to godliness. Isn't, is that a Bible verse? No. But anyway, but I still think it's true. <laughs> you should wash your hands, but that's not what this is about. This was not about washing your hands, you know, with a little soap and doing the ABC song so you've done it long enough. Okay? This was about being ceremonially clean. And so they had all these rules and regulations In fact, verse 4 says, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things, Mark speaking now, or at least Peter's thoughts are behind Mark's gospel, which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. And they had this whole regiment. In fact, the Mishnah has uh, 35 pages devoted to the washing of vessels and daily implements. If you're wondering about the Mishnah, it's just a simp- simply a collection of Jewish oral tradition from the rabbis that was then put into a book. And so they, they followed this. And the tradition of the elders became so important to the religious elite that it began to be elevated above the word of God. This happened in denominations. It's happened in some world religions where all of a sudden you start to interact with people and you find out what they believe and you start to press them on what they believe and they can't find a Bible verse to support what they believe, but they say the church teaches this. And so now, if you show them a Bible verse that says the opposite of what that church may teach, 
there's a bit of a dilemma. And here's what the dilemma is. I think it's obvious. Which one are you going to believe? If the tradition of the elders is contradictory to the word of God, which word will you trust? That's why the Bible has to become your final authority in faith and practice. That was the cry of the Reformation. That's the cry of the Protestant Reformation. The cry of, hopefully, evangelicalism is to let the Bible decide how you're going to live and what you're going to do. And so this is what they did. In fact, some scholars believe that when you have the ideas of washings here and cleansing themselves in verses 3 and 4, it has more to do than just washing your hands the right way. It has to do with even taking a bath. So you can imagine that people who were this meticulous about washing, I'm sure that they had the microscope on many other people. And it became now just about all the Jewish people had to do this now, just not the religious elite, everybody. So the religious elite came from Jerusalem. They saw the disciples not doing it the right way, and this was their focus. Never mind that thousands of people are getting healed. Never mind that it's clear that Jesus is the Messiah. No one spoke like he did. No one could do the works that he did. Never mind that stuff. You guys aren't cleansing yourselves the right way. Now, I don't want to put them down and go be too harsh on these guys because even in the Maccabean period, between the two testaments, there were good Jewish men who died uh, because they did not want to, for example, eat swine's flesh. And they died at the hands of some terrible men. I'm not mocking everything they believed, but what I am saying is that they took it too far. They took it to an unbiblical extreme. And all of a sudden, people were trapped in this legalism that wasn't even from God. And here they come. Traditions are a funny thing. Bayer Corporation stopped putting the cotton wads in their genuine bear bottles. The company realized the aspirin would hold up just fine without the maddening white clumps, which it had included in their bottles since about 1914. You ever had a headache and tried to get it into that bottle? And you're like, what in the world? Why did they stuff all the stuff in there? We concluded, I'm quoting, there really wasn't any reason to keep the cotton except tradition, said Chris Allen Bears, vice president of technical operations. Besides, he said, it's hard to get out. <laughs> tradition, right? How many things do we do for tradition's sake? Now, some traditions are wonderful. They're good. There's nothing wrong with them. But if your tradition begins to be elevated above knowing God, it's certainly a problem. By the time of Christ, uh, this became a firmly entrenched requirement for all who wanted to be clean. And so there were, there were these pots. You remember when Jesus turned the water into wine? They had these water pots everywhere so everybody could do the ceremonial cleansing before they ate. And it became, can you imagine the line at the, at the pots? You think the lines at restrooms are bad. And then everybody had to do it the right way and hope that the water didn't drip back down on their hands come on, right? This is, this is how they lived. And so they come down to Jesus and they start accusing his apostles, verse six, and he said to them, you gotta love, Jesus is very politically correct here. He said, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. Now, when he first said that, maybe the religious leaders were thinking, oh great, he's gonna apply an Old Testament prophecy to us. But hold on, boys, <laughs> Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. 
Ouch. The word hypocrite means actor or phony. He says, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but what? Their heart is far away from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. This uh, quotation is from Isaiah 29, 13. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. Now, with that background in mind, you can see why Jesus was so strong in his words. People were under this weight of legalism. They couldn't even move on the Sabbath day. They had to go through all these ceremonies. And Jesus arrives and says, boys, you are a bunch of hypocrites. Instead of looking at the beauty of the work that's been going on, all you can do is focus on your little legalistic requirement. You're hypocrites. You honor me with your lips, but your heart is far away. Now, before we point a bony, righteous finger at these guys, we realize this can happen to any of us, right? I mean, we can put on a show, as I mentioned in the introduction to the message. We can fool people. And Jesus nailed them. He said, your hearts are the problem. I want to take you back to this quotation. It's found in Isaiah 29. So go to the book of Isaiah, if you would. Isaiah 29. It's always interesting to look at quotations and see their context. And Israel is being addressed in Isaiah 29. And let's pick it up at verse 9. Isaiah 29, verse 9. It says, Be delayed and wait. Blind yourselves and be blind. They become drunk, but not with wine. They stagger, Isaiah 29, 9. But not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured over you a spirit of deep sleep. He has shut your eyes the prophets. He has covered your heads, the seers. Isaiah 29, 11. The entire vision shall be to you like the words of a sealed book, which when they give it to the one who is literate, saying, please read, read this, he will say, I cannot, for it is sealed. Then the book will be given to the one who is illiterate, verse 12, saying, please read this, and he will say, I cannot read. Then the Lord said, because this people draw nearer with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me, 29.13 Isaiah, and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. Therefore, behold, I will once again deal marvelously with this people, wondrously marvelous, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish. The discernment of their discerning men shall be concealed. Woe to those who deeply hide their plans from the Lord and whose deeds are done in a dark place. And they say, who sees us? Or who knows us? You turn things around, says the Lord. Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay? That what is made should say to its maker, he did not make me. Or what is formed say to him who formed it, he has no understanding. I mean, think about it. The one who is the master potter who formed these guys, the clay, is telling them how life is and reality. And they're saying, oh, you know nothing. The clay is saying to the potter, I don't know what clay sounds like, but I don't think so. <laughs> Why did you make me this way? The, the Bible became a sealed book even to the religious leadership. Back to Mark, I apologize for that voice of clay. But anyway, so get this. I did some research on 
Bible statistics in our world, here's some quick statistics about the Word of God. Almost one in five churchgoers say they never read their Bible at all. Only 45% of regular church attenders read their Bible more than once a week. More than half of evangelicals believe the Holy Spirit is a force and not a personal being. The problem is that's what Jehovah's Witnesses believe. 27% of British parents think Superman might be a biblical story. Do you know what's happened in Europe, folks? Christianity is almost dead in Europe. Churches have become mosques and places for other activities. 40% of American Christians believe that the Book of Mormon, the Koran, and the Bible all express the same spiritual truths. LifeWay research found that while 67% of Americans believe that heaven is a real place, 45% believe there are many ways to get there, including one in five evangelical Christians. And on and on it goes. And Jesus came to the religious elite of the day, and he said, you don't even know the Bible. You claim to teach the word of God, and you can't even get this stuff straight? Wow. And so he says, you nicely, look at Mark uh, 7, verse 9. He was also saying to them, you nicely set aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. Because traditions are made up by man, they can be followed by man without the need of the Holy Spirit. Spurgeon said to his congregation facetiously, if there were no Sunday morning service at 11 o'clock, I wonder how many of you would be Christians, close quote. Wow. Those are strong words, but maybe they need to be said. Moses said, honor your father, verse 10, Mark 7, and your mother, from Exodus 20, verse 12, almost a literal rendering from the Septuagint. And he who speaks evil of father or mother, let him be put to death, Exodus 21, 17. That's for all you kids to mark right there. But you say, if a man says to his father or his mother, anything of mine you might have been helped by is Corban, that is to say, given to God. You no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down, and you do many things such as that. So people... There was a, this idea of Corban is not a bad thing. It's, it's actually, the word is used in the Old Testament, but, but what people would do is they would dedicate certain things to God and they would make a, a Corban vow and they would make it to the religious leadership. And so maybe somebody would make a rash vow. Maybe in a, in a moment of uh, difficulty, they would say, I'm gonna give this, I'm gonna dedicate this to God. It's Corban, it's set aside only for divine purposes. Let's say something happened in that family. Mom and dad got sick, lost a job. And so you came to the religious leadership and you said, hey, I know I made that vow, but I, I made it in a, in a moment of weakness or whatever. My, my mom and dad need help. The religious elite's response was, too bad, you made the vow. You can't help your parents. And some of the religious leaders apparently were even saying this to keep themselves from helping mom and dad. So mom and dad would say, we need a little help, son, help us out. And he, they would say, well, I'd love to, but this is Corbin. It's already been dedicated to God. I can't help you. What's the law about? Love God and love who? Your neighbor as yourself. But Luke 16 says the Pharisees were lovers of money. 
And so they manipulated the system. They used the vows of people and these little traditions that developed over time and became unbiblical. And they manipulated the system. They manipulated people. And they were the ones that were gaining in all of this. And so after he had called the multitude to him again, this is a very public exchange now, he began saying to them, listen to me, all of you, and understand. Now this is a... uh, radical statement that Jesus is about to make. It's a principle that is really unheard of at this point in the Bible, at least among the religious leadership. And he says, there is nothing 15, nothing outside the man which goes into him that can defile him. But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. If any man has ears to hear, let him hear. That's in brackets because it's not in all the earliest manuscripts. And when leaving the multitude, he entered the house. So he makes this sweeping statement in front of the whole group. They probably, the group, the public group probably witnessed the debate. And Jesus makes this statement. There's nothing that goes into a man from the outside that can make him unclean or defile the man. The things which proceed out of a man are what defile him. And when he left the multitude, he entered the house and his disciples questioned him about the parable. They always did this kind of thing. They said, Lord, in another one of the gospels, they say, Lord, did, do you know that you offended the Pharisees? <laughs> like Jesus is like, yep. Yeah, that's pretty clear. Okay, we just want to make sure you knew they were, they were kind of offended by what you said. Oh yeah, that was intentional, just so you guys know. Did he teach a parable? I don't see a parable here. I just see... I just hear that he taught. And look at what Jesus says. He said to them, are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not go where? Into his heart. But into his stomach it is eliminated. And thus he declared all foods clean. Praise God. (laughs) I heard it. I heard it out there. I heard somebody say, Bacon, bacon, bacon! Yes! Mark 7, 19. Praise the Lord. Now you'll notice that this statement is in parentheses. <laughs> you gotta wrestle with that one. No, I, it's inspired. But it was not part of Jesus' original words. It's parenthetical. What's what's that mean? It's the author. Still inspired. Peter's thoughts are probably behind Mark's gospel. And he says he declared all foods clean. Now that doesn't mean if someone has a conscience problem with meat or pork or shellfish, they should eat it. You don't have to. More for us. But no, I'm just kidding. Anyway. In, in Acts chapter 10, you remember Peter is up on the rooftop in Joppa and he has that vision of the sheet that comes down from heaven and it's filled with all these clean and unclean animals. And, and the voice from heaven says, Peter, rise up, kill and eat. And he says, oh no, Lord, I never eat anything like that. And God's response is, don't call unclean what I call clean. Now, the deeper message there was that Peter was about to go into a Gentile house of Cornelius, and he was 
to be able to break through that barrier and not believe that Gentiles were unclean or that he would be unclean by entering into a Gentile dwelling. And Peter wrestled with that, I think, for the rest of his life. But the point is this. It's not what goes into you that defiles you. Foods and the like, that's not what defiles you. Because you eat something and it goes through the body processes and it goes out. The real issue here is what does defile you then? Here's the question we should be asking then. What is it that can come into my heart and mess me up? What is it that can defile me? And Jesus is about to answer the question. He was saying, verse 20, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, Mark 7, 21, out of the heart of men, the core of who they are, proceed, here's a list, evil thoughts, fornications, that's sexual immorality, that's pornea in Greek. It's wider than adultery. It's any sexual sin outside of marriage. If you are having sex with someone that you are not married to, you have committed sexual immorality. End of argument. We have dishonored the sacredness of the marriage bed. We have, you know, the word honor and sacredness is almost gone from our culture. And I'm getting alarmed, more and more alarmed by it. But I will say this, God took me through a process and taught me things about sacredness and honor that I did not know when I first came to Christ. And I didn't know in my early years of being a Christian, and I made a ton of mistakes. So I'm not here to bag on you, but I am saying that as I've become a a man who's walked with God, words like sacred and honor are words that are in my vocabulary. And I'm sometimes alarmed at what I see and how people can just brush these things aside. Evil thoughts, fornication, thefts. Uh, The Greek word for thefts is where we get kleptomania. Murders, adulteries. Deeds of coveting, verse 22. It's an appetite of what belong, for what belongs to others. Wickedness, that's a heart completely uh, uh, equipped to e- inflict evil on any man. Deceit is a bait and deceiver. Sensuality is plunging into moral debauchery, we're in verse 22. Envy is the evil eye which watches another's possessions. Slander is blasphemia. It can be slander or blasphemy of God or men. Uh, slander of men, blasphemy of God. Pride is arrogance. It's the sin of self-praising who has contempt for everyone else except himself. And foolishness or folly is a person being desensitized morally and spiritually. Jesus says all these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. You might want to just write down Matthew fifteen twenty as we conclude. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. Now, as we, we're coming to the end here and we're going to get ready to take communion, the question that I was asking as I studied this passage is this. Then, Lord, if those things don't defile and if, I've, if my problem is within, what is the solution? What can I do for this heart that Jeremiah 17, 9 says is deceitfully wicked? It's sick. Above all things, who can understand it? What do I need to have happen so that these things don't easily flow out of my heart? Because sometimes it seems like they easily can. What needs to change? What needs to happen so that this heart can be healed? And the good news is 
the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us the solution. Here's what it is. Are you ready? You need a new one. (laughs) You need a new one. You need a heart replacement surgery. I'm not speaking in physical terms. I'm speaking spiritually. You need to be regenerated. You need to be born again from above. You need to have the Holy Spirit come and live in you. You need that power in you because in and of yourself, you cannot be holy. You cannot be perfect. Your good works are as filthy rags before the Lord. And Jesus was saying to the masses and to the religious leaders, if you want to know God, you must open your heart. You must say, God, I repent. I'm sorry. I cannot do this in and of myself. Change my heart. Cause me to be born again of your Holy Spirit. Jesus said that to Nicodemus. He said, unless you're born again, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. I don't care if you are the teacher of Israel. I don't care. You must have an experience with heaven or you're going to die in your sin. Ouch. But here's the good news. If you ask, he won't deny you. If you believe in your heart, The Bible says it this way, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Would you bow with me? Father, as we get ready to come to your table, we're here hungry to know you better, hungry to have you invade our lives in such a powerful way that what ends up happening is not the product of us, but you the fruits of the Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit flowing into our hearts and out of our lives. Oh God, how we need you. It's easy to be quote unquote religious, to play the part, but it's so frustrating because there's no power there. But how good it is to know that you want to change us, you want to do a work And what you ask us to do is open our hearts and you'll do the washing of regeneration. Not by our works, but by your kindness and grace. With your head and heart bowed, if you're not sure you're a Christian, you don't know if you you died tonight, you would be in heaven. Maybe you've been coming to church for years, but you're not sure you have that new heart and that new start. Today can be your day. On this Independence Weekend, you can say, I decided to depend on God for my freedom. True freedom comes in knowing the one who made you. He wants to start the work in your heart, but you must open the door. If you want to do that right now, don't let anything stop you. Something like this, I would encourage you to pray it. Lord Jesus, come into my life. Pray it out loud if it's you. I'm sorry for my sin. I repent of it. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you that you died on the cross for me. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for rising from the dead to defeat my mortal enemy, death. I trust you. Change me from the inside out. Change my ways and my habits and my struggles and my doubts and fears. Lord, I open my life to you. As a Christian, you can be praying this too. We all need a time of refreshing in the Holy Spirit. And Lord, I pray that as people have opened their hearts and as we get a chance to come to your table now, 
You'd meet us here and minister to our souls. In Jesus' name I pray.